Welcome to Bioethics on Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Many of us naturally tend to believe that scientific proposals are rational, provable, and thus credible. But is this really the case? Today's guest, Dr. Carr Smith, raises a number of questions about the credibility of contemporary scientific claims. Dr. Smith is the author of the essay, The Decline of Scientific Credibility, in the August 2017 edition of Ethics and Medics. In this podcast, Dr. Smith explains why he believes the loss of abstract reasoning skills has precipitated a decline in scientific credibility. So hello, Dr. Smith. How are you? Oh, very good. I was wondering if we could um, start off with you giving, uh, giving us a bit about yourself, if you could tell us briefly about your education, your professional background, just to, to give the audience a better sense of who you are. Well, uh, I went to undergraduate school and got a degree in biology with a minor in chemistry. And then I went to graduate school and got a doctorate in molecular biophysics. Uh, but uh, so my coursework was uh, heavy in physical sciences, but my dissertation was on basic cancer research. Where did you do so your doctorate? I, uh, say that again? I was just saying, where did you do your doctorate? Uh, Florida State University, the Institute of Molecular Biophysics. And... Um, then I uh, went from uh, South Alabama, I mean, from Florida State in 1984 to the South Alabama Department of Pathology, and I trained in human experimental pathology for two years uh, under uh, the late, great William A. Gardner, Jr. And uh, so what I, that's, I really am, have been a experimental human pathologist uh, primarily, uh, but I also later became board certified in toxicology. So I've been certified in toxicology for the last 25 years. My main bent is human toxicology and clinical trials. And my current research interest is Alzheimer's disease and uh, uh, been a completely separate thing on uh, the comparative medicine of the clinical applicability of uh, animal results uh, to human disease. So those are the two areas I work in now. With that background, what, what factors cause you to write this essay? In other words, why do you believe that what you stated in the essay needed to be stated? Well, uh, this last spring, I was sitting at the back of a keynote lecture at an international brain research meeting. Uh, I was there, you know, for the Alzheimer's parts. And uh, the, a well-known neurosurgeon was giving a talk on the future of neurosurgery. And when you hear that, your expectation is the two neurosurgery right now is one of them is these brain tumors are very hard to get the whole tumor out. And the other one is uh, the brain swells during trauma and the patient gets more brain damage. So I thought I was going to go in and listen to a lecture on that. So instead, 
the talk that the guy gave on the future of neurosurgery was about installing a Faraday-type thin wire metallic cage inside a, a healthy patient's skull to make an electrical connection from their brain directly to their iPhone so that they would convert the patient into being a poor man's cyborg, right? So, so, uh, uh, so, so by the time the speaker worked his way up to talking about how we might all have to become cyborgs to remain economically competitive, I said, you know, I need to write an article on the decline of scientific credibility. So, so anyway, that's how that's how I decided to write the specific article because it, it was it was just it was so silly. I was sitting there thinking, what would the old guys that trained me think about this? They'd have all gotten a cup of coffee. The old neurosurgeons just kind of sat there and you know tuned out, and the young people, you could tell that they've seen so many episodes of the Big Bang Theory, they didn't think anything of it. And you know, but it was it was just. It just shows you where where the culture is going, where you would do that at a keynote address and at a major international meeting. So how relate that, if you would, then to the claim that you made that um, that, that the abolition of the classical liberal arts education has adversely affected abstract reasoning skills? How does that play into what you're saying? If you think about your life as a student, uh, most of your early life experience, even from early grade school, it's spent being evaluated for your aptitude at answering questions. So we learn in school, we tend to view facility of abstract reasoning as the ability to solve a problem that's posed to us. So during our school years, there's a there's this that big emphasis on solving the posed problems, but that posing occurs within a dictated, rather short time frame. In other words, you're under a lot of time pressure in a school situation to answer whatever problem they pose to you. But when you graduate from school, real world problems uh, they represent a different form of abstraction. In the real world, there are frequently many, many possible courses of action that you can take in relation to some challenging problem that you're facing. So now the, the abstract ability is to compare and contrast the various possible outcomes that flow from the if-then scenarios. And that's, that's the kind of abstract reasoning that takes precedence. So when you have a, a good classical liberal arts education, the accumulated wisdom from that, that you assists you in discerning the suitability of those possible different outcomes. And so what you see is you see people that are really good at little picture thinking, but they're not very good at big picture thinking. It, it's, a, it's a combination of the, the listener even, even the professional scientists being inundated by a vast amount of misinformation in the media and even in the scientific literature combined with uh, poor abstract reasoning skills, people don't, aren't, they're not able to logically sift through that amount of information. And that's why it makes things like 
the level of chemophobia that we have in the country, uh, it makes it seem rational to people. Well, let me give you an example of what I, what I mean. Um, like on a super, are you familiar with the term a super fund site where uh, there are sites that the federal government has designated where a tremendous amount of chemical waste has been dumped? A site like that. Yes. You can spend, uh, you can clean 80% of the site up for 20% of the cost on the average. This, these are very approximate numbers. And then the last 20% costs you 80% of the cost. So if you have a huge number of these sites, the scientific approach would be the cost-effective thing to do would be to go and clean up 80% of all the sites. And instead, what the way federal regulation works is the it, it's if somebody gets involved with a the site, they need to clean up the entire site. And so they're way into the uh, bend-over part of the uh, the uh, economic, the natural log of X paying for it curve. And uh, so it's, it's not a good use of the national resources. Related to all of this, um, the scientific community, often you'll hear in the scientific community uh, that uh, the work that scientists do is value-free. There's no such thing as value-neutral science. It's like it's like they claim that they have value neutral education. Why do you think they? Why do you think they claim that? Is that what they are taught? Is that what? Um, is that what they are formed in in terms of their education, um, or is it in part because maybe internally they recognize that there are very important philosophical, anthropological, moral implications with their work, but they just don't want to deal with it. I think it's more primitive than that. I think it's uh, uh, I think it's like that famous quote where uh, uh, after Richard Nixon won by the massive landslide and uh, the woman from the Upper West Side of Manhattan said, that's amazing because I don't know a single person that voted for Richard Nixon. Uh, I think it's a similar thing where people get in these these isolated insular groups. And uh, if you're an academic scientist at certain major research institutions, everyone you know has a similar worldview. I've noticed that and as well, so too. Yes. Yes, absolutely. You know what I'm saying? So you don't think that, you don't even think it is a worldview. You just think that that represents what any thinking moral person would, would believe. And so, so they they believe it's value neutral because they don't believe that any other opinions have validity on those topics. So what do you do about that? As a scientist, what do you do about that? I, I don't know. You know, the, to tell you the truth, real by the time students reach college, uh, it's almost too late. Uh, it's like in the parochial school system in, at the grade school, middle school, and high school level. If they want better science education, that's where they need to. That's where they need to give the kids the foundation. If they if they want to teach people things like medical ethics, it's too late after somebody goes into the state university 
and it's exposed to the reigning narrative to then try to turn it around. So could a, or what, could a classic liberal arts education counteract this this insular value neutral or or not? It, it seems to me like you're saying that a classic liberal it, arts it could, education on the- It could, but early intervention is the key. Okay. I think, I think that it's in, it's a, at starting at the grade school level, the kids need to be taught uh, just the way Catholic mission schools where I went, I had Irish missionary nuns from Ireland in the 1960s when I went to school. That, that type of, there was nothing value neutral about that, uh, that old classical liberal arts education. And uh, I think it needs to start early and be consistent. In other words, like your history class has to have values. Your your um, you know your civics class has values. Your religion class has values. You know across the board. Unfortunately, I, I as, as you're speaking, I'm I'm thinking about my own experiences from from teaching, and I can remember um, for for years I used to have very good discussions in my ethics classes until the fall of 2013 when students just stopped talking and I couldn't figure out what the problem was and about halfway through that fall 2013 semester I asked one of my colleagues what's what's going on what am I doing wrong and they said you're not doing anything wrong what's happening is we're getting the first generation so to speak of no child left behind students coming into the colleges and universities and I said well what do you mean and they said, with the No Child Left Behind legislation that was passed when it was passed, um, the, the high schools are not teaching students to critically think. What they're teaching them to do is to take a test. And so all students want is, well, what do I need to know for the test? And that was a real eye-opener for me. And I went and I asked my daughter about that. Um, she was in about seventh or eighth grade at the time. And I said, Maria, do they... Do they do any critical thinking skills in your classes? And she said, no, they don't. It's basically, this is what you need to know to pass the test. So I'm wondering if what you're saying here, and I, and I agree with you 100%, I'm wondering if the American secondary school system is, is, is moving away from that so much that you know, we're going to have actually a worse situation going forward than we do right now. Well, I, I think it is. From from seeing the transition in the students, I mean, I hear what you just said from people all over the country. When I go to when I go to a meeting, I'll say, "What do you? Uh, what is your issue with your students?" And the same thing comes up every time. The students don't want to know, and this is across the board: medical students, graduate students, different fields. They want a minimalist approach. They uh, they want to make sure that they learn exactly what's on the syllabus and nothing more. <laughs> when the real point of the real point of the course is to teach them the critical thinking. Absolutely. And instead, they're oriented toward learning the exact course content. And they feel like you're imposing on them when you're when you're uh, trying to also put in the critical thinking part. Because the way they look at it is it's like, if I'm not going to use this in the operating room, why are you telling me this? Absolutely. And then on the other end, I've, I've taught 
healthcare ethics classes to nurses who are on the, you know, they're on the opposite end of the spectrum. They're, you know, in their 50s, their 60s, they've been practicing nursing for 20, 30, 40 plus years. And they really appreciate the, the critical thinking, the critical examination approach to education. And, and I've, I've heard so many times, I, you know, I've never had this before. I wish I had had this earlier. So, you know, it's, it, it, there's obviously a need, but, you know, our, our education system isn't, at least right now, is not meeting that. No, it's not. And it's like anything else. You know how everybody knows that if you don't teach a kid to read by about the end of third grade, that there's a real high chance that the kid will struggle with it the rest of his life. Yep. And so everybody tries to intervene. Well, they teach, uh, you know, the, the, the idea that something's value neutral is a value. Right. So Absolutely. Uh, non-judgmentalism is, is a judgment. And so, so they pound that in from the earliest possible date. It's hard to get people to rank order things. Yeah. So uh, you say that one consequence of the lack of abstract reasoning skills in the scientific community is the, quote, elevation of environmentalism to the status of religion, unquote. I think it's a great example. Uh, can you offer us some other practical examples, either from your own experience or from the scientific community as a whole? Well, I, I think environmentalism fulfills uh, a lot of the aspects of the religious impulse for people, especially young people, to sacrifice for something bigger than oneself. Um, I spent a lot of time in Western Europe as part of my job, and Western Europe has experienced a larger decline in religious sentiment than the U.S. has. So uh, concomitantly, environmentalism is a stronger movement in the Western European population than in the U.S. So I've driven a rental car across a lot of Norway, and when you're there, an American can't, you can't help but notice just the impositions on daily life imposed by being in a truly green country. There are, there are no highway signs, uh, just like a fork on a sign or a, or a cartoon of a bed. Uh, when you go into, there's only two fast food restaurants in the whole country, and there's almost no, no napkins in the dining room. There are no thermostats on the walls of the self-serve hotels. The automobiles all have cut-off switches. And, uh, you know, the, the standard giant Western European windmills are around. So what I always notice is when I'm – that when you go through Western Europe, uh, the, the, the spire on the church steeple was always the tallest feature. And for – hundreds and hundreds of years, nobody ever built anything bigger than that. So now the, these new giant windmills, they're, they're, they're de facto temples to the new God, where they absolutely just totally dwarf the, uh, you know, the local church everywhere that you go. So you can see that there's been a huge psychological shift in Europe. Let me ask, let me push you on that a little bit. Is... Is the environmental movement, as you see it, particularly in Western Europe, and, I, and I've been to Western Europe many times, and I, I, I know what you mean, are you saying that it's necessarily a bad thing that that environmental movement is happening? It's a, I think it is in the sense that it's a, uh, 
it's a substitute. And that's why uh, uh, a, a, a rational environmental movement would be data-driven. Okay. Uh, this environmental movement is more emotion-driven by people's religious impulse than it is driven by scientific data. A little follow-up question to that. Uh, given the emotional response to climate change that you describe here, what would a rational approach look like? Well, I think that that uh, Lundborg guy, uh, the, uh, the Swedish environmentalist, I think what he's saying is probably the the smartest uh, the smartest advice. His concern is that right now, uh, windmills and solar cells with their current technological levels are extremely inefficient. So the governments are subsidizing these poor, inefficient technologies as a way of, uh, of satisfying uh, public sentiment and, uh, and also subsidizing uh, governmentally favored corporations. And we'd be much better off if all that investment was being put into the development of clean technologies uh, that were uh, going to give you a lot more kilowatt uh, production per unit dollar. So essentially, we're 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 disseminating old tech, we're disseminating inefficient technologies to fulfill that emotional response. All right, so let's take this take this the next the next step further. Um, here at the at the National Catholic Bioethics Center, we see the manifestation of the societal lack of abstract reasoning skills, and the consequent lack of critical evaluation as we're dealing with contemporary issues like the transgender issues, gene editing, as we just mentioned. It's also ongoing for many years in other areas, such as uh, certainly contraception, abortion, euthanasia, physician assisted suicide, and things like that. What do you think is the future of our society if we continue to uncritically accept these realities? We always hear, you know, you can't judge me. Um, you know, we don't, un we uncritically accept these realities, but then we have to deal with these consequences. Where do you think our society is going? Well, uh, whenever I hear about the, the generalized decline, which is, what we're really talking about. I think about a, a part of a piece of dialogue from uh, Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. Uh, the question is raised, how did you go bankrupt? Two ways, gradually, then suddenly. <laughs> and so I, so I think that we're in the gradual decline, what uh, Robert Bork called slouching toward Gomorrah. But at some point, you'll go into a rapid decline and you'll hit a true bottom. And once we hit a true bottom where these problems get so bad that, that they uh, are, uh, cause a, dis, a, a complete dysfunction in the system, I think that's when you're going to get a reform movement. How far away are we from that, from that point? I'd say when you look at, I'd say we're 20 years behind Western Europe, if I had to guess. That's exactly what, I, that's and exactly West, my answer too. 
Yeah, I'd say we're 20 years behind Western Europe. And I'd say that Western Europe has now hit that bottom and is dysfunctional. And and what's going to save Western Europe is Eastern Europe because they'll have a place to go. <laughs> because, you know, people, because of the Iron Curtain, people that haven't been to Eastern Europe, they don't realize how big and how developed it is now. Right. So what is it going to look like? <clears throat> Excuse me. What is it going to look like when this bottom hits North America? Well, what we're litigating in the United States right this second is whether or not we are going to go to that bottom or not. So I guess the best word for it is Christian Dumb. Uh, you know, Newhouse's thing about whether or not uh, people of religious beliefs and traditional beliefs, whether they religious or not, I guess natural law type thinkers will be allowed to stay in the public square in the United States or not. Because that's kind of what we're arbitrating now. The uh, natural law thinking has been driven out of the public square fairly steadily for about 30 years. Mm -hmm. And there's not a lot left of it in the public square. So we're trying to see whether we'll be allowed to retain some natural law thinking still incorporating itself in the uh, civil law or not. How much does religion play, actively play, in that foundation that you're talking about? Observationally, it's one of those things where if you use logic, you know, uh, natural law theory, uh, you know, uh, it shouldn't matter that much, but observationally, it historically does. And uh, I, I can't remember which letter it was, but George Washington, uh, well, he noted it in his final address. In George Washington's final address, uh, because during the Enlightenment period, there had already been large numbers of communes set up and all kind of little niche groups. And whenever people try to go and use human reason uh, devoid of religious beliefs, the people they themselves who were, who were raised as children in the religious tradition, they tend to retain the same uh, value system and behavior throughout their own life. But they have a difficult time getting their children to, uh, in other words, using just humanistic values they have a difficult time getting their children to retain the morality level of a parent. But it seems like in, in religious traditions, they're able to pass morality down intergenerationally with a lot higher efficiency than trying to do it off of just a purely humanistic value system. We've kind of gotten away from uh, our, the, the topic of the uh, of the essay, uh, but just kind of want to bring it back a little bit. Um, okay. And, and uh, coming back to your your point about the, the lack of liberal arts uh, and the the resulting lack of you know of, of abstract reasoning skills. Um, question for you, looking towards the future, other than requiring more liberal arts courses in their curricula, if any at all, um, what do you suggest the scientific community do? to foster greater abstract reasoning skills within its practitioners? Well, I think by far the most important thing that could be done in the short run is 
everyone has got to get back to the idea of freedom of expression. Uh, the, cli the worst thing the climate science debate has done is uh, it has this whole idea that people that don't agree with the uh, orthodox theories are, are deniers, you know, to try to link them to Holocaust denial, you know, which is obviously the extremely pejorative insult. Uh, the best way to learn in science, the way I've learned most of the science that I have learned, reading the literature is good. You have to read the literature, there's no doubt about it. But the literature is so heavily edited and represents such a small sliver of what people really think that the best way is talking to other scientists. So, uh, uh, and so in order to have a really good open dialogue where you learn as much as you can, people need to be able to present dissident views without having their motives questioned. Like if some guy doesn't agree with a computer model that shows a certain amount of uh, climate sensitivity, meaning how much does the temperature go up with how many parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere, because he disagrees over some mathematical constant in an equation, it doesn't mean he's a tool of Exxon. And so we, we've got to get away from all this, uh, all this motive questioning and get back to an environment where there is an open dialogue and people can question anything in science. And uh, if we got, if we had that, that would go a long way toward allowing you to reason because it wouldn't have all these taboo subject areas. Oh, you, you can't, don't tell me about cloud cover. You know, I mean, that's the way we're, we've been getting. Uh, the bottom line is the, the problems in science are just like the way the problems in the church are. The, the problems in science reflect general problems in society that since scientists are members of the general society, that they leak into science. And we're having a tremendous problem, especially at the university level, with freedom of expression right now. And so we need to be able to have freedom of expression within science, just like we need it in all other areas of the universe. Um, finally, what, uh, what final points or words of wisdom would you like to leave us with today? Well, I just, I just think that even though uh, I, I would encourage people not to give up. Uh, you know, uh, I had a, uh, an old pathologist, uh, uh, I better not say his name. He's an old department chairman at, at NYU. He was one of my uh, closest mentors. And uh, he, he used to love to say, nothing is as powerful as an idea as time has come. So I'd say that unfortunately right now, postmodernism is a very bad idea and it's in its heyday. And it's probably going to do a lot more damage for the foreseeable future. And so, but in the long run, the truth will win out, but it's going to have to hit a bottom and it, it could take five, 10, 20 years. Uh, and, but if people give in 
the bad changes could be permanent like they probably are in Western Europe. And we need to be uh, where everybody just needs to stay strong and stay positive so that when things finally do bottom out, uh, that we can get the culture and, uh, you know, back on uh, solid footing again. All right. Thank you, Dr. Smith. We appreciate it. And we encourage all of the listeners to, um, to read the article, The Decline of Scientific Credibility, in the September issue of Ethics and Medics. Thanks a lot, Dr. Carr. Okay. Thank you very much. For more information on this topic and for answers to other bioethical questions, visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. I'm your host, Joe Zalot. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.